With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. We've reached the point in our investigation where it's time to bring in the big guns. This case is absolutely perplexing. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. On one hand, we have behaviors that indicate a clear attempt at concealing the crime scene, while at the same time we see other behaviors that undo the concealment. Last week, I delivered my profile. It's my belief that Vicky was the intended target and John was expected collateral damage. I believe that Becky interrupted the killers and was killed while attempting to flee. I see a level of criminal sophistication that led to the case going unsolved for 10 years and ultimately resulted in a circumstantial case against Robert and Christian. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear a different perspective. I brought in one of the world's best and most well-known criminal profilers to weigh in on the case. Our conversation went on for over three hours and will be split up into three episodes. This is Season 12, Episode 9, Jim Clementi, Part 1. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I'm joined today by retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and a writer of Criminal Minds, uh, now unemployed that the show's over. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not over, actually. Uh, the writer's room is back up, and uh, we're doing season 16. Really? We're back. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. We're back. Lisa yeah. back, back as a casting director? Yes, she is. Oh, sweet. When is the new season coming out? Uh, you know... Probably in the late September, early October time frame. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I got this this in now, though, because that sounds like you're going to get real busy again. Well, I am really busy already. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking time for us. Always for you, Bob. Always for you. So well, a lot of probably 90% of my listeners know what you do, what profiling is. But every season we pick up new listeners. Um, so if you can, I want to start off, have you first kind of give a, a a quick breakdown of what profiling is, what it is you do, and, and what it means when you deliver a profile? Okay. Well, profiling is basically reverse engineering a crime or a series of crimes. So you look at the behavior exhibited at a crime scene and you work your way backward to the type of person committed that crime. So we always say that how a crime was committed leads you to why a crime was committed, which leads you to who committed the crime. So how do we do that? Well, we start with victimology. We look at, it's a study of everything you can possibly know about the victims. And that's about their families, their relationships, their thoughts, their dreams, their desires, their work, their, their, situational awareness, their criminal activity, if any, um, their risks that they engage in in their lives. Then we look at the crime location. What area was the crime in? 
and the logistics and demographics of those areas. And because committing a crime in the middle of a mountain in the desert is different than committing crime in the middle of Times Square, mm -hmm. where there might be 200,000 potential eyewitnesses at any given moment. And then we look at the crime scene itself and the behavior exhibited there. What kind of preparation is evidenced at, the, at this crime? And, and how much time did the offender spend with the victims? And, and did they bring the implements necessary to commit the crimes with them? Or did they use things at the scene? So all those things are going to be uh, indicative of things like the criminal sophistication and the organization level of the offender and forensic sophistication as well. So you have those things, and then we look at pre- and post-offense behavior. Are there indications that there was something, a lot of planning going on pre-offense, that there were um, other things that they had to do to commit this crime? In other words, pre-crime surveillance or uh, planning. Did they show up with exactly the number of findings that they use that they needed to use did they show up with the murder weapon did they did they clean up after themselves and so forth and all those things tell us something about the offender and then you can kind of predict some post offense behavior as well if you have a non sophisticated non experienced criminal and they committed let's say a murder then typically their behavior probably changed and people around them will have noticed something that changed. They may have had to take off from work. They may have left town for some emergency situation and they don't come back till everything calms down. So there's all these factors that we look at. And when we look at those particular factors and we analyze the behavior that we see, we start to form a picture um, of who, what kind of person committed this crime. And it can be the age and the gender and the criminal sophistication and the criminal history and, and the relationship to the victims. All those kinds of things can be sussed out from the offender's behavior. So the profile, and the word is misused a lot uh, in, in the media and the public, but the profile is for unknown offenders. In other words, you build these characteristics to try to whittle down the suspect pool to uh, a more manageable number and the, and the type of person, um, as opposed to, let's say, what people call racial profiling, which is basically saying that somebody of a particular race is more prone to commit a particular type of crime. Well, that's all bullshit. You don't predict uh, criminal behavior because of somebody's race or any other characteristics other than when you actually see a pattern of behavior. When somebody has a past pattern of behavior, that may indicate a future crime that they might commit. You have to know about what that individual has done before you can say whether there is a propensity to commit another crime. So that's pretty much it. Is that do what you needed to do, Bob. Yeah, and and I, th I think a big point that that we should make is that a profile is is really based a lot on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really based a lot on probabilities and statistics. So, like, if you come up with a profile that says it's probably someone who's in their mid twenties, you know, X Y Z, fill in whatever the profile is, that doesn't mean that 100 percent that's who did this. It's it, it's it's more that's the most probable. Yeah, well, what we try to do, I mean, there's certainly plenty of possibilities that you can think of whenever you have a crime committed. But what we're trying to do is determine what the highest likelihood, the most probable person who did this. And so it can be very general in certain aspects, but there can also, it depends on how much behavior we have evidenced. And of course, we usually get called in when there's no smoking gun or blood on a knife or DNA or fingerprints. Usually when there's no forensic evidence, they call on profilers to try to help guide the investigation to the right type of person who committed it.
Right. And that was one of the reasons, you know, we, you and I have been talking about this case a little bit since you know, we were supposed to, we were, before you got sick, got that Charlie one niner back in January. Uh, we were, we were, we were yeah. going to go meet at the, uh, at the crime at the scene. Location. Um, mm-hmm. and it's because this is one of those cases where I think a profiler would have been very advantageous to the original investigator. I would have liked it. Yes. Yeah. Cause we don't have very much physical evidence, little to none. And it's an extremely perplexing scene. I've just mm. in the last, and you haven't heard any of this, uh, but in the last couple episodes, as we got through the medical evidence, I've started to finally kind of have an idea of what I think might have happened. But the whole mm. thing is mind blowing to me, the, how complicated the scene is. So this was like the perfect incident that I think really needs the the input of a profiler. All right. Well, I would like to get your insights on, on what you think happened, but I, I have a few questions first. Um, but because this case is, is very complicated as you well know. Um, and it's complicated because there are some really bizarre things that happen, but I do think that there may be some real logical explanations for those things. But I have to ask, which direction was the wheelbarrow pointed in that, uh, Becky's body was found in? It was pointed towards the house. So like if you were pushing it. Uh, not directly mm-hmm. at the house, but the general direction was from the national forest behind, which is just desert area. Um, the handles were pointed that direction to the north, and then the point of the wheelbarrow was facing south. And did anybody in the family identify that wheelbarrow as coming from the family, that that it was owned by the family? No. Uh, it, there's nothing in the police report indicating that they asked anybody that question, but also everybody that lived at the home was murdered. So there's no, you know, there, Becky had sisters that were all older and had moved out years before and, and hadn't lived there. Okay. Um, I'm just taking notes. Sorry. Um, and how did Becky call into work? Well, that's still up in the air. So the, the manager that that told police that she had called that night they didn't interview him until seven years after the fact and so he says yeah so it's known for sure she was supposed to work that night supposed to be to work we believe at nine o'clock even that's a little shaky because of the lack of investigation police never talked to the original investigators never talked to the the managers at denny's seven years later they did he says that she called and, and said that she's halfway down the mountain, forgot her, which she'd have to be halfway down until her cell phone would work because there's no cell service at the site. Said she forgot her shirt. Should she come in or go get it? He said, go back and get your shirt. So she, you know, supposedly went back up, but then never showed up. It was confirmed by another manager that she definitely was supposed to work and didn't show up that day. So they were all worried about her. But we don't see any calls on her cell phone records indicating that she actually called Denny's. We don't see any information on the, uh, the, the landline that she had called Denny's, but there's a whole, I'm still working on piecing because they've got cell records for all of her friends. And, and so it's just this big maze of numbers. I'm trying to piece together if anybody called Denny's. Right. And, uh, so how far away is her house from Denny's like time? Time was, yeah. Yeah, I drove it and it took me about 40 minutes driving at a pretty good clip to get down there. You've got the, first of all, to get out of the neighborhood from their house, which is all the way in the back, is only about three and a half miles, but it's really, really rough dirt roads, washouts, rocks that are exposed, it'll rip your oil pan off. So you got to take it pretty easy through there. And then you get into the switchbacks and the mountains going on your way down. So it's, you can't, rip down there real fast so it's right 35 40 minutes and did this manager say that she called before or after she was due in other words you know did she call it 8 15 did she call at 9 20 do we have any idea his his memory was she it was before she was due like like as though she would have been on time if she continued on but it. because she went back to get her shirt that that she wouldn't have been on time, which is why she called. And they did not find the shirt or her other clothes in the car. No. Well, again, they did a pretty terrible job of processing and what they collected, but we have a lot of pictures of the car and some of my listeners 
you know how they're always engaged in everything found in one of the photos there's a crumpled up light blue shirt that could be a polo in her back seat and then they looked up denny's uniforms from 2006 and there was a grayish light blue polo shirt they wore so we think it's it's possible that her shirt was in the car but we know that she wasn't wearing they were required to wear black pants and as you can see in the crime scene photo she's wearing kind of capri blue, blue jeans yeah all right well um now there was supposedly some kind of um uh, disturbance in the in the sandy ground or whatever into up north from the house mm -hmm. right and that's the direction the wheelbarrow came from right and there were footprints over the wheelbarrow track right, right. were those footprints aligned so that they would be by the person who was pushing the wheelbarrow or were they like somebody crossed over it afterwards and had nothing to do with it? It's hard to, it's hard to tell the way they documented the photos. Like they're real close up of all of the footprints to where they're at. They're aligned next to the officer that took the photos testified that it looked as though the way the angles worked, that the footprints could have been left by the person pushing the wheelbarrow as you know, mm -hmm. as they turned it and you know, then they walked right. over the tracks. But there's two different shoe sets, three actually, because then we later find out that there is one of, not necessarily Becky's shoe, but the same make and model of the shoe Becky was wearing out there in the desert as well. Um, there was a track of that or? Yes. Yeah. A track in okay. the dirt. The original investigators missed it. but then Was it the right shoe or left shoe? It was the left shoe, know? the one that's missing. So the original investigators had taken a photo of what is very clearly a van's footprint mm -hmm. and that later discovered and had uh, an analyst from the FBI look at it down in the corner of that photo. There's a little bit of a partial and through their database going through different makes and models of shoes, they were able to determine it was made by a left globe logic shoe, which is what Becky was wearing. It's also a very popular shoe in Southern California in 2006, but most likely I would say probably it's the shoe she was wearing. She definitely owned one. Um, but they didn't, they, they didn't conclusively say, cause they didn't ask them about size, even though the FBI agent said he could have said the size if they'd asked him to do that, but they didn't ask him about size. They only asked him about making model. <laughs> okay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you cause you didn't ask. <clears throat> that sounds, that sounds just like an FBI lab person. Yeah. I should clarify. He didn't say that he knew the size. He said that he could have determined the size had they asked him to do that. So it's not like he knew it and just didn't tell anyone. Right. Just that they didn't ask okay. him to do it. All right. A couple things. Your summary said that there was no accelerant on the bodies. Are those just the inside bodies? Because right. I'm pretty sure that there must have been accelerant on yeah. Becky. They, di they didn't find, the arson investigators didn't, didn't find any evidence of accelerant on or near the bodies in the house. There was only two spots. One was at the base of the stairs going upstairs. One was at the entrance into the garage, into the garage. Right. And which the base of the stairs is a really good place to start a fire. If you want to burn down the house, because then it'll travel up. Right. The staircase. And it, right. And it's possible. And he, and he acknowledged this in his testimony. It's possible. There were other set points upstairs, but there was no, it had all burned up and collapsed down. So he was, there was no way to sure. know if there was anything upstairs because the fire was originally spotted coming out of the east facing window uh mm -hmm. in the peak of the house is where it was originally found which could have ran up from the steps or it could have been another set point up there right okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. couple of timeline issues that I need to so burn body expert determined she was burning between 20 and 30 minutes before the fire department extinguisher right but her body was extinguished 25 minutes after the first documented 911 call right so couldn't have been 20 minutes right right uh had to have been closer to 30 minutes right well, so on that point, though, okay, because we have some timeline, some co- adding more complexities. Was the first nine one one call could have seen the fire coming out of the house? It's potential. It's possible that her body hadn't been lit on fire yet at that point, you know, because there was already a fire that could have drawn the the the, the first call, right? But how long after they saw this did they drive up and see her burning in the barrel? The the first person on the scene was not the first nine one one caller. Uh, he had called in. The fire department captain testified that three calls came into the directly into the fire station line, uh, mm-hmm. which didn't go through dispatch. And he said he gathered his gathered his guys. They got in the truck, headed out. At nine fifty one, the first actual nine one one call comes in, but we see on the dispatch log a different name. It's not the name of the guy that I've talked to. It had to have been within a minute of that came Tim Summerly, who was um, who we thought was the first caller originally. He called nine one one, and he's the one that got in his car and drove up there. It was the first person on the scene, but there had been. But but he called before or after he drove up there. Before. Oh, he called before he went up. Yeah, there's no cell phone service up there at all. Everybody had to call from landline. I know, but he could have gone up, saw it, and then come back. No, they. he looked out his bedroom window. Right, he was going to bed. What time was that call? Uh, it's not documented because the the dispatch log only shows the first call. Okay, when's the first call? 9.51. The first documented call to dispatch. Plus, the fire captain says he recalls that they were already getting in the truck going en route before they were dispatched by the by dispatch because of the direct calls no hard time stamp on that he says around 9:45 so uh 9:45 they got direct calls to the fire department right by who he had no no names because it was you know they picked up the the direct line and he didn't answer the phone somebody else did another another fireman on scene did or at the station so they answered it hung up phone another one calls another had three he, he says three calls bang 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 and he told his guy on his testimony, he said, hang the phone up and let's go. So there's no recording. There's no nothing. How far away is the 25 minute? Right. Well, that's how ride. long it took him to get there approximately. But if you if you look at the map that's on probably the first page, downward says Highway 74. Yeah. Uh, so where Pinion Drive hits Highway 74, you head back to the east about a quarter mile. The station's right there. It was just outside the neighborhood. Right. But how, right. How, how, as the crow flies, how far is that? I can't I have no three as a crow flies, probably three miles from the crime scene road wise, probably okay. four and a half miles. So is that within earshot? Like for example, when the fire engines start rolling, can you hear it up in that neighborhood? It's a good question. I would think yes. It's very open. You know, there's no trees to muffle anything. So I think I would say right. yes. If they were running with with sirens, which he said they were in his testimony, yeah, they would have heard that. Okay. And part of the delayed response, one is, you know, washed out roads and just a hard time navigating back there. And the other part where they got they actually got stuck at one point going around a curve. Uh, they had a truck coming the opposite direction, almost run them off the road. So it took them all the way. It was ten twelve when they officially got to the scene and reported on scene. Okay. All right. That makes a little sense. Um, so in terms of Vicky and John, Vicky, well, let's start with John. John shot 
in the kitchen, mm-hmm. right? Right. With um shotgun from ten feet plus away, right? Yeah, that's I haven't seen anybody make that determination that was the what we that know was you and your bear hunting knowledge. <laughs> right. Yeah. What we know is the wadding from the shotgun was embedded into his body so much so it's plastic. It didn't melt in the fire. Yeah. I mean, it embedded deep. There's also a pretty decent scatter of the of the bird shot, which tells me well, that's why I said maybe back to ten feet. I don't know how far how close. So it was bird be. shot in the in the shotgun. Yeah, very light load, like like number eight shot mm. bird shot. Mm. And I, I thought it's possible it could have been a sawed off shotgun that would give the spread while still being close. Mm. But then I don't know that you would get the the wadding traveling that deep into them. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. It's 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 perplexing. The 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 shot when you look at the X-ray is spread out over maybe 10, 11 inches. You know, kind of a group about like this. But then the wadding's all the way in him. And show me where on the body because it's like his arm and his chest, and his abdomen. First shot's kind of here, like like neck, upper chest, and then the uh, not first one of the shots there, and then the other shot is down here and onto his arm and elbow. Okay, all right. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of probabilities, uh, he's probably the greatest threat and was probably taken out because of that Mm -hmm. first. Right. So I'm thinking he was likely the first one shot, which would then put mom on notice that, uh, some bad things are happening in the house and maybe she was running is the laundry room, is there an exit from the laundry room or is it a closed? No, it's right. It's right at the back door. Right. So maybe she was running to try to escape. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's when she got shot. She was shot, obviously close range kind of execution style. It seems. Yeah. It's the, the fire obviously creates some problems, um, because you right. have bone damage from the fire, but there was, the the me described a huge a lot. He didn't give even a size. The the, the autopsy is a page long, but there's a there's a, a pretty big missing chunk of the skull on the right side on her right side, and then the bullet was embedded between the skull and scalp on the left side. Um, mm-hmm. it just in my experience as having responded to, and I'm sure you know better than me, to a lot of suicides. Usually, a big entrance wound like that is from the gun being literally pressed against the head from the blowout from the gun. Yeah. Well, generally you would, you would have, you know, you would see the evidence of that on the skin, um, and the bone and the, you know, the, the, uh, the angle, um, that the defect takes, but, um, the fact that it went through one side of her skull, then the other side of her skull, but didn't penetrate the skin on the far side. That's a 40 caliber. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was contact or not, but anyway, that, that one, what do you know about that? Cause that one perplexed me too. Cause I, I've, I've literally, I've, I've been to two suicides with self-inflicted 40 caliber gunshots to the head mm-hmm. and they went through and through both of them went through and through. now, now with a lot of energy, one of them, I actually found the round. It had gone through, there was a, a light paneling wall about three feet away from him. The mm. bullet, I saw the bullet puncture where it punctured the paneling, went to the other side and was laying on the ground. Right? Like that was the end of its energy as it punched through the paneling. But I was pretty, right. pretty surprised that the bullet didn't exit. Yeah, well, you know, I've seen cases where um, the bullet doesn't exit and it just travels around the skin and, and ends up somewhere in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's, it's an anomaly. I mean, you know, were these, were these lead, lead rounds? Were they semi-jacketed hollow points? You know, I, I, it's just all of that would make a d- difference. Mm-hmm. So it's you not know? entirely unreasonable that it didn't exit in your opinion. No, no. Okay. I mean, you know, you, it's going through some pretty heavy bone twice. So the first one will make it spread out. And the second one will make it spread out more. And then skin is incredibly flexible. So it happens, you know, like okay. that, that the skin will, will capture it and, and make it 
travel around. Um, you know, smaller, you know, smaller caliber one would, would, would make it through just one side of the skull and, and bounce around inside. You know, it's horrible. I'm sorry, uh, you know, for the family to hear things like this, but you know, she was just sort of put out of her misery kind of thing. You know, um, there doesn't seem to be any, um, any indication that somebody wanted her to suffer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Although it could also be, and we should keep in the back of our minds, you know, this kind of an execution style thing where she could have been trapped and made to kneel down. And then somebody stuck a gun up against her head and pulled the trigger. Um, so there is a possibility that Vicky could have been the target of this, mm -hmm. but I'll get back to that. And then Becky, and this is one of the things where I think we need to go back and forth about your expertise and mine. She's in the wheelbarrow and tell me the condition of her head. They said there was no injuries to the head, right? Yeah, there were no in the x-rays and the autopsy where they you know, removed part of the skull uh, and looked at the brain. There were no, there was no evidence of any skull fractures, no evidence of any brain bleeds. Right. So the, her chest area was completely consumed, right? The left side. Yeah. The, the left side, the, I mean, you could see through the ribs into some internal organs. Some of the internal organs had burned pretty good. I mean, there's, there's spots where you can, you know, see air all the way through. But there was no, this is what is confusing to me. I mean, there was no bullets, shrapnel, birdshot, nothing recovered from the wheelbarrow? No, nothing in the wheelbarrow and nothing in her body through x-rays. They also, I don't remember if I noted in the report, but they examined you know, her hyoid and, and larynx. And so that was unremarkable. So there was also no evidence of of strangulation so it kind of i don't know kind of points towards something happened in the area that's too burned to get any data from right and the only thing that it could have been then if they actually did a good forensic evaluation of that wheelbarrow is that she was shot in another location and the bullet went through and through mm -hmm. not a high likelihood that she was shot with a shotgun right more likely that she was shot with handgun however she shot not in the head like her mom was right and it's her left side and you know just wondering is there enough of the heart left to determine whether there was anything damaged you know the in the autopsy the heart was unremarkable the what you know what, what was there they you know, they said there, there that a good portion of her, part of her left lung was burned away, so they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't do much with that. The heart, I believe, was unremarkable, uh, and the right lung was unremarkable. Uh, so there's from the organs they had to work with, they just couldn't find. You know, the ME testified, and so there was just nothing. They couldn't, they they couldn't determine any cause of death because they couldn't find an injury that would cause death, and the indications right. were she was dead before the fire. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was ruled a homicide, though, right? Correct. Yeah. So the manner of death was determined, but the cause of death was not. And that's not not unusual in a situation like this where the remains have been burned or decayed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you'll have that situation. Now, one thing to note is that had it been a knife, I think it's possible that she could have been stabbed, but it would be difficult, I think. From from what I understand, for there, that not to leave some indications on the rib bones if she had been stabbed. But they're burned quite a bit also. Yeah, but still, I mean, you know, I mean, somebody can get lucky and go between the ribs. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, her hyoid bone could be intact, but her throat could have been slit, right? Uh, no, there was a there was it was the the fire up there had charred her neck. It was outside or on the okay. outside, but it was still intact enough that you could see if there had been a, a cut. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Her, they said all the way down her esophagus and larynx were unremarkable. No injury. 
Okay, then let me ask you this. As a fire investigator, arson investigator, are you able to determine with respect to the location and the severity of the burn on the left side of her body? Are you, is that, I mean, I'm assuming there was burn, she was burned all over her body except for her legs that were right outside of the wheelbarrow and 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 her head was sort of above mm-hmm. right yeah but her face must have been charred some yeah it was extent, right yeah okay but can you tell where accelerants were placed and can you tell whether the condition of the body having the left hand side being to a greater degree consumed can you tell anything for example what i'm trying to draw is an analogy between someone who is left out in the elements and decays and somebody who is burned Mm -hmm. so if somebody's left out in the elements if there is a gaping wound on a particular area that area will decay faster right and I'm just wondering, is that the same with this? Is the fact that most of her left side was gone, is there any indication that that's where any wound that she had would have been? It could be. It's definitely not an exact science, but when a body burns like this, the majority of the damage actually comes from your own fat burning. Is what happens. So if somebody pours accelerant on the body, you'll get a big fire. It'll burn hot and heavy for maximum two minutes. And then unless you have like a pool, you know, it's filled up with some accelerant mm-hmm. that then the accelerant is soaked into the clothing and any low spots. And that will have heated up the body to what gets to the point where it literally liquefied renders the fat in the body. And then the fat becomes the fuel, which sustains the fire for a long period of time. Being in a wheelbarrow, is a, is a perfect, and in, in the, in the expert testified to this as well, that you, know, you have a situation where the fat, as it liquefies and becomes fuel, can't run away anywhere. So right. it's, it stays there and continues burning. Continues so, the fuel, yeah. Right. So gravity could, pay, could play a, a, a factor in that. You know, as the fat is, is liquefying, the, the, it will go, obviously, to the lowest point, and that's probably where are going to have the most damage. In this case... Looking at the photo, you know, the, the photos, the, the wheelbarrow is kind of tilted forward. I should look again now that you asked that if it's possible, if it was leaning more to the right or the left. I'm going to pull that up right now as I'm talking about this. But one th- what I was getting at is that a gaping wound or a wound could be a place that would allow more fuel to collect, which would cause it to burn hotter and longer. It also gives direct access to the underlying fat, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, causing it to. Yeah, so and it, looking at the at the body in the wheelbarrow, her left leg is over the side a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is possible that it was leaning that way a little bit more. Yeah, and that's um, it's it's hard to tell because the ang- I'm looking at it now too. The angle, of the photos, it's definitely leaning forward and I've, I've stood in that spot and it and it definitely angles downhill like towards the the side her head's on. It also tends to, I think, run that because there's a path directly from where it's hard to see it in the photo on page five. But there, if you look to the right of, of her at the top photo on page five, you see there's a little rock path there, not mm-hmm. you know before the 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 bushes. If you took a photo yeah. from that spot, it's a very it's a, probably a four foot wide clear path lined with rocks that runs straight to the back door of the house. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I, th- I think that gravity could play a factor in that, so it could be make no difference it's a but four foot pass that runs straight to the what the back door okay all right so she's basically behind the house what is the structure i'm seeing in that picture the car you see the car behind there and then you see a white structure kind of on the top yes. right of the photo that's the garage that's the part that the only part of the house that was left standing so that was an attached garage attached garage and then to the right uh is where the house was which is burned completely down okay and I was pretty honestly skeptical of the the expert with the body burning timing. Generally, I'm very skeptical of any arson investigator that tries to put a time on things because there's so many unknown factors, say in a structural fire. You know, if somebody says, 
well, this fire was burning for 10 to 15 minutes in a house. Is it, well, how many windows were open? What was the weather conditions? Was the wind blowing? What were the contents of the house? In this case, though, I was, I went in a skeptic and came out a believer reading her report or very long report. And they've done similar to what you guys do with the body farm. You know, her whole job is she's experimented with hundreds of bodies that they've burned in hundreds of different ways and mm. documented times and temperatures and everything. And I, and I looked through the experiments that had similar conditions and every one by 30 minutes, basically the ribs were crumbled. Like they, they were burned so bad. They were just completely crumbled away and hers had not got to that point. So I, mm. I agreed with her based on her studies that 30 minutes would be the outside time. Cause they didn't get to the got point it. that they had. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I I believe that with respect to Becky, she was killed in another location and she was put in this wheelbarrow and brought here for practical reasons. In other words, how much did she weigh? Her body at autopsy weighed 105 pounds, but there's some had burned away. So I would say 120, 130. Yeah. So the person did not have the ability or the desire to carry her. And I think she was being transported back to the house that was burning at this point. And uh, they got interrupted. I believe that because of the multiple weapons used, that there was more than one offender. I don't believe this was done by one person. It just, I think the higher probability is that there's more than one person not criminally sophisticated, although they were able to, I mean, a 40 caliber weapon was used and no casing was found in the house. Right. Right. And the shotgun shell casing was not found. Right. Now, is that because it got burned up and lost in the fire? Or, I mean, you said they didn't do such a great job uh, doing the, crime scene the the uh, the initial crime scene investigation was pretty poor you know for example they didn't collect the wheelbarrow as evidence jim just rolled his eyes in case you guys since you guys can't see that um <laughs> they cut the handles off of it for testing and took those with left the wheelbarrow her car was full of duffel bags full of clothes and books and journals and they collected a, they took like four items the, a, a book a journal uh, just a couple things and just left everything else in the car. So there's, yeah, there, it was like, they didn't have a lot to work with and then they didn't work with what they had. Uh, so, but as far as the fire goes, the arson investigators seemed to be pretty sharp. They said they spent a lot of time sifting through everything in the fire. Uh, but they did use heavy equipment to do that. So something like a, the brass from a, a bullet casing could easily, you know, the way I've been at these fires, you scoop it up and, pick through everything in there, see if you see anything, let them dump it. They grab another scoop, you pick through everything, see if they find anything, uh-huh. and then they dump it. So it's, it could easily, you could easily miss, you know, in a shotgun shell casing, the plastic will melt, you'll be left with just the bottom bit of right. brass on it. Uh, so, yeah, we don't, it could be they policed the brass and took it with them, or it could be just was they weren't yeah. found. Um, as far as the wheelbarrow goes, uh, we can talk about that for a minute. It's been one of the most perplexing parts of the case for me and everybody that's ever investigated the case. The The general theory is exactly what you said. She was killed somewhere else and hauled with the wheelbarrow. I've struggled with why put her in the wheelbarrow. You know, if they were going to put her in the house, when the, when the neighbor that got there first got to the house, it was not in a condition at that point where you couldn't still walk into it and throw 
know, there were still only flames coming out of upstairs that he could see. You could have still put her in. So right. why stop? Because there? He, they were doing it. They were doing it then. That was when it was happening. Because I think the whole timeline of the neighbor seeing in the garage and then the garage being closed by the time the fire department got there, they were still there. I think they got interrupted in the middle of doing it. And when the neighbor came up and then took off, the, the neighbor came up with his car, right? So they had a warning that right. somebody was coming. That must be when they decided to light her on fire right there, right? Mm -hmm. they, the neighbor saw the burning mannequin, right? Yeah. And took off. Yeah. And that would timing why I'm trying to think that through because timing wise, the, it was a very low smoldering fire when he was there. So it was past the point of the explosive accelerant. Wait, in the house or in the in the wheelbarrow? In the wheelbarrow. He didn't know there were bodies in the house. He just looked through the door. Right. The wheelbarrow, he said he like he doesn't even remember if it was burning, but he went back, you know, we went back to his original statements and it was a very low burning. So that would indicate the 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 accelerant had burned up high, come back down, and at that point the fat was rendering. So it'd been a few minutes at least. Yeah, a few minutes. Yeah. Right. But but in, you know, in this place where there's no streetlights, a car's head be, headlights coming up that hill or coming from what? How far away was he? He was probably as a crow flies, 400 yards. He was two streets down the hill parallel, but then he did. So he drove around the corner and he had called 911 first. No, he called 911 or the. He called 911. All right, he called 911 and there had been calls to the fire department already and they were already on the way, right? They right. were already so that was in response to the fire in the house. They could have set when when the sirens start blaring, they could have set the fire to her and then gotten out of dodge. Sure. And working through that scenario, we've got so they would have, and they may have been separate at this point, by the way, right. the offenders. Yeah. Working through that scenario, if the intention was to take her to the house in the wheelbarrow, they obviously wouldn't have had accelerant with them. So they would have had to stop, put the wheelbarrow down, get the accelerant, bring it back to her, pour it on her lighter, and then put the, put the accelerant somewhere. There's nothing around her. So it was either one of the gas cans that was put back in the garage or they took it with them. Right. We don't don't one way or the other. So there's a, there's a few minutes of, Action. So I'm just putting myself in kind of the mindset of, okay, oh shit, someone's coming. Do I run around back and forth or just to, it, it seems like it'd be faster just to continue rolling her up to the house and dump her in. Right. Except that I think, you know, where they are, I would think that they would, you know, they could dump her in, I guess, through the garage or the back door. Right. Right. Those are the two best entry points. But if the cars that would arrive are going to come up to the side of the garage, that could have stopped them cold. I don't know. Yeah. The back door, I think from that. And that's the thing that threw me off about this is I'm looking at if you're, it's kind of why I wanted to walk the scene with you because things that I noted well, was it's downhill. Like from where her body's at in the wheelbarrow to the back door is a clear path downhill. Seems like a weird spot to stop. You know what I mean? If you're panicking it's, and so what I, part of what, what, what I'm, I think that we should at least consider, or at least talk through, and you tell me if you think it's it's wrong or and why. Is what if the fact that the item that her body was put in, having a wheel on it, is a complete red herring? Where where we think it's in a wheelbarrow, there's tracks. They must have pushed her body in the wheelbarrow. What if the wheelbarrow was just there, and her body was put in it to burn it? We see some some evidence of, as you mentioned, the location of the fire set in the house. I see as a fire investigator some indications of someone that has a decent knowledge of how fire moves because we've got a fire starter right at the front at the door that's open drafting in and the second location at the base of the stairs that'll run it up the stairs. I don't see what I've seen in every arson fire using accelerant I've ever seen, which is they spread it all over the place. You mm. don't see it spread on the bodies. We see two strategic locations where the fire was started. Which makes me wonder, and I honestly, I don't think I would have thought of this, but was she put into the wheelbarrow because it was there because it's a good container to burn her body up and keep her body burning in the tree? Because you know, we see in some of the crime scene photos, there's freshly planted, freshly transplanted trees right there by the wheelbarrow. All right. Yes. Let's talk about that. So 
burn her body up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you know about burning bodies, you know you're going to have to continue to add accelerant. And, you know, and obviously in this situation, what would be the purpose of completely destroying her body? In other words, so we're talking about body disposal. So who spends time on body disposal? Who doesn't just leave the dead people where they lie? People who have a known connection to the victim, right? The more time you spend with the body after you kill the person, the greater the risk to you in getting caught, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, I whether this was a transportation modality or just a body disposal modality, either way, they didn't finish that job. They were interrupted. If they had intended to completely destroy her body, they would have had to fold her legs into the thing and continue to add accelerant to make sure it was gone. If they were trying to put her somewhere, they would have had to continue that journey and they stopped. I think both of those things show either way, whether they used it as a transportation or just body disposal modality, either way, they got interrupted. The fact that one shoe is off and her sock is rolled down. um, And you said they found a shoe print of her left shoe back towards the, the North side of the house, right. You know, into the wilderness. Right. I mean, you know, she could have, she could have run away and lost her shoe in the process. And they had to bring her back. They felt they had to bring her back. And that's why the wheelbarrow came into it. Because carrying a 130-pound person is, you know, it's not easy. You just carried a 50-pound pack into the woods. Right. Right. That was kind of difficult. And you're you're a big, strong guy. I would have a real trouble carrying somebody that that size. So I still feel like whether it is the way they decided to dispose of the body or the way they decided to move the body that this was a uncompleted task and that is an indication of being interrupted right they intended to do something more than what they did and it is by you know sheer luck on their part i think and maybe the way fires burn and the way fat feeds a fire that whatever way they actually caused her death has been covered up by it. I don't know that it was specifically calculated, but it may have been. You know, you said that the way the fire was set in the house can indicate to you that they may have had a a knowledge of the way that to maximize the damage from the fire, the, the you know, the spread of the fire. What it, what it seemed to me was it was it said it stood out from every arson that I've ever personally fought or investigated that used accelerants. It seems to me that the fire was set in a way that could that could cause the most damage while buying the most time, right? You could cause more damage by cut by covering the entire house with gas, blow it up. Mm-hmm. Not blow it up, but you know, it'd be near damn near explosive. But you don't set off the alarms until people actually see the flame. Right. So if you set a small fire at the base of the stairs and a small fire at the opening of the garage, leave the door open, light it. Now the flyer is not visible from the neighbors, which are hundreds of yards away. You have time to get away before the fire gets big enough to consume the house. Right. And then on 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 Becky's body. If the, if the, if the, if the purpose was to dispose of the body, I agree with you. And it could be that that's the case, but I wonder if the purpose wasn't to, and I, and and this is important for us to hash out because it was pointing to two very different types of people. I think if the purpose was a forensic count, let's say the offender tackled her as she was running somewhere and they know their DNA, their hair, maybe perhaps their blood is on her body. Mm-hmm. That the fire wasn't intended to destroy her body; it was dis- it was intended to destroy any forensic evidence on her body. It didn't matter if her whole body burned; they just needed their DNA, hair, whatever right. burned away. Right. But if you look at so we have this. This is why this case is 
is difficult because of the array of things that happened mm-hmm. with respect to Vicky and John. There was no attempt to put accelerant on their bodies. There was no attempt to maximize the chances of what happened happening. In other words, the fact that they, that the fire was not interdicted before their bodies were charred beyond recognition, uh, was fortunate and, and probably they didn't do anything to maximize the chances. Right. In this case, though, she's put in a in a can, basically, and and accelerants poured on her, and she's left to burn, right? Mm-hmm. So they did make an effort. So that is an indicator that she is being treated differently than the other two. That right. she may be the main target, and the question is whether her and this is one why I asked questions about making the call. She had to have been down the hill at some point in the, you know, 820 range, let's say, or, or 830 range in order for her to make that call and to have been gotten to work on time. And so she very well may have then turned around, gone back up the hill and stumbled into this situation and then that would mean she would be collateral damage versus the target and that's why i thought it's interesting that the mother was basically executed whereas the uh mother's boyfriend was basically just kind of taken out at a distance which just seems like getting rid of the major threat right and yeah there's there's so many because because one thing that we I think we have to consider is that the call could be a false memory from this guy only because we haven't verified it yet uh, and it was seven years after the fact it was a, it was a listener that pointed out to me no keys no purse no wallet in the car it's all it's anecdotal but it seems like a weird thing to do if you're just quick pulling into the house to run in and grab something that you would take all that with you I don't think she would have taken she would have left the keys necessarily. I mean, you know, I know a lot of Postmates drivers and everything love to leave their car on and running for some unknown reason, mm-hmm. uh, while they make their little deliveries. But I mean, this seems like, uh, she was going in to change. She wasn't going in just to run and grab a shirt and go. Mm-hmm. Obviously she didn't have the right pants on. Right. And she was going to need, to change her shoes, right? Yeah. And and her shirt. So I don't know. Did she always have a, a purse with her? Not sure. And obviously, from what you're saying, the house was too well engulfed that they didn't recover any of those things. They never recovered her driver's license anywhere. So assumed it was in a purse or a wallet or something. We guess in the house, unless the offenders took it. Right. Well, that's another thing. That's the other thing that's possible that she rolls up on them and she gets out of the car there in the middle of doing bad things and she takes off. They chase her and kill her and throw her in this thing and try to get rid of the evidence. Right. They, they probably did try to carry her and it's a pain in the neck. And so they put her in a wheelbarrow to bring her back. And so the, you think the hope then would be the hope would be to, basically mask that a crime occurred at all like the house burns down and hope everybody just thinks it was a house fire well certainly that's what everyone was thinking before they found the bullet holes and the the bullets right yeah had had she not been burning in a wheelbarrow which tells everybody that this is a crime Mm -hmm. then they could have potentially gotten away i mean i certainly know uh israel keys got away with a double homicide on the uh, Atlantic coast, North Atlantic coast. He brought the victims to a abandoned building and raped and killed them and lit it on fire. And the news headlines are that the, this couple perished in a fire. Right. And he went out to celebrate and that was the beginning of his downfall, but he was a very 
forensically and criminally sophisticated offender. He did that, you know, very calculatedly. He he didn't just kind of stumble onto it. Here, the attempt to burn down the house did not include, I mean, if they were sophisticated in doing this, they would have used a knife and nobody would have known because mm-hmm. there's nothing to x-ray, right? Right. So the fact is, let's say the plan goes perfectly. They're going to shoot the people that live there and they're going to burn the house down and everybody's going to think that they just died because mom was smoking, right? Mm-hmm. In bed. Well, clearly that's not going to happen because they're shooting people. So, you know, they're leaving bullets and bullets don't go away as easily as, as you might think. So they didn't plan this well. This is not, this is a poorly planned and poorly executed crime. So as we're building that profile, I would say we're not dealing with somebody who's criminally sophisticated, somebody who's done this before. We're not dealing with somebody who, who really knows enough, you know, about how things work to hide the fact that there was a crime. Yet this person or persons spent the time to quickly douse the inside with a couple in a couple of areas with with accelerant and then did this bizarre very public burning of the daughter in the wheelbarrow so that's a major mess up it's what alerted the guy who drove up the neighbor who drove up that there was a crime going on right this is a crime scene i'm getting out of here not Oh my God, my neighbors might be stuck in there and asleep. Let me go in and save them. Right. Right. If that were the case, if she wasn't burning outside and they were all dead inside, it would have been a major surprise and it would not have been known to be a crime scene until after the autopsies. And that's not what happened. They actually did a crime scene because of it. In other words, you're an arson investigator. You roll up on a house and these people are dead and they're beyond recognition. You can't see anything physically that indicates a murder. And nobody's going to be trekking around the backyard looking for tracks, looking for little business cards crumpled up and all that, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that they left her burning is what alerted the, the neighbor and the authorities to the fact that a homicide had happened. Which kind of is the most perplexing part of the whole thing, because... Well, which tells me that they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And so they screwed up. They were interrupted. The plan was bad, and the execution was bad. My conversation with Jim continues next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. 
Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Bob Ruff Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.